The Australian Football Video Film Festival podcast is proudly brought to you by LeagueTees.com.au, the retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. The League Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies, and all things retro footy. That's LeagueTees.com.au. Have you ever bought or rented a videotape that wasn't quite right? Folks, let me warn you. It's bruising, bloody and very much in your face. And we've pulled out stuff that would make a 16 stone wharfie cry. But a hundred minutes of top footy action. Welcome to the 90s, the decade that delivered. It was a 10-year period in football unlike any other this century. The electrifying 80s, the highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the sensational seven. The Peter Hudson story, Dublin's Jim, the story of Jimmy Steins, the road to victory, Collingwood's struggle to the premiership and the year of the rising saints, St Kilda's fight to the 1991 finals. Video Film Festival. I'm Dylan Leach. That was the season that was 1983. It follows the action of the 1983 VFL season. From the frenzy of player movement during the Silvio Fascini transfer case, we also go on to meet a young Bruce McAvaney who interviews Malcolm Blight at Woodville. That was the season that was 1983 pays a visit to Rene Kinkity's hair salon and opens with a pie-eating and beer-drinking montage set to Eye of the Tiger. On the field, it was the start of Hawthorne's dominance of the decade. Ross Glendenning from North Melbourne won the Brownlow. Teams like Fitzroy and the Kangaroos made an impact, and it was also the beginning of Richmond's lost years. This features a masterclass in television presenting from Peter Landy. My reviewer this week is one of the people behind the greatest season that was podcast, Shannon Gill. Well, he's known for telling the story of the greatest season that was 1993. But this week we're going 10 years earlier to that was the season that was 1983. A big welcome to this week's reviewer here at the Australian Football Video Film Festival, Mr. Shannon Gill. Shannon, welcome. Thank you, Dylan. Honoured to be part of this podcast series and um, thank you for posting all of these great uh, retro games you've been doing over the last month or so when we've been in isolation they've helped a lot um 
and I'm sure we we've all we've all enjoyed um, looking back at the golden era of footy. Shannon, take us through exactly what that was the season that was was all about. <laughs> so that was the season that was film. We're calling it a film. It's a it's, that was the season film was, festival. <laughs> it was an annual film that Channel Seven made as a as a summary of of the the footy season that just happened. So, what it was, it was a it was a round by round look back at the season. Um, basically, you'd go round one, and there'd be some highlights of different games, but it would tell a bit of a story of the season as it went along. And typically, they would they would air these these uh these films the night of the grand final or the night before the grand final or the week before the grand final whatever it was it was it was a it was an annual thing they used to do to to summarize a season and i think it's um it's something that isn't doesn't really happen these days i think we we're more into making more artful documentaries and more um you know more in-depth explorations of things and and I wouldn't say that that was the season that was was artful or or an in-depth exploration, but it's a great document of a footy season. If you want to know what happened in a footy season, um, th- this is what they are. And and they ran from the first one happened in 1978, and it ran through on and off. It missed years here and there, but it ran on and off through till 2001 when uh, when Channel Seven lost the rights to Channel Nine, but it um, and Channel Ten. But this was something that that was an annual part of a footy season. So a great thing to discover and, and, um, and summarize a time and, and a time in the game. It's, it's kind of disappointing. They don't make that uh, programs like that was the season that was anymore. I've, I've kind of got a theory that footy history is a bit like classic hits radio where it's seventies, eighties, nineties and today, but today spans 20 years. Yeah, well, and, and I think it's it's one of the reasons why, and I, I'm guilty of it myself. Um, I'm certainly more interested in, in looking back at those times, but I think part of the reason I, I'm more interested in looking back at those times is there aren't these markers of, of seasons and, and sort of putting things into an order for the last 20 years, really, that, that help us make a little bit more sense of it all. Um, and even... You know, like with, with the the Brownlow each year when they play the round by round highlights. I think in recent times that's, you know, they've gone in all sorts of directions with that, but not it doesn't tell the story of the season. Whereas I think if there was a, some more of these that were done through that time, we'd have better markers of the seasons, and perhaps um, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be classic hits radio that that uh, that we're aping. Why have you chosen out of all that that was the season that was that are available? <laughs> why have you chosen the year nineteen eighty three? Because you don't oh, barrack for Hawthorne. No, no, it's nothing to do with what happens on the field in nineteen eighty three. So when when these these came out, I, as a kid, uh, my brother and I watched the electrifying eighties as as when it when it first aired on television in nineteen eighty nine, and it was it opened up a whole realm of of footy to us that we had to know more about um that was the season that was was a was a thing that started running and we we we, in the following years we we watched it but a few years after this they australian football video the you know sponsors of this film festival (laughs) um 
<laughs> no, they don't exist anymore. Uh, they uh, they released all of the old. That was the season that was on video, and so we we promptly gobbled them up. The reason I've picked eighty three though, um, and it it can be distilled into one word, one name, Landy. It's a Peter Landy festival. That was the season that was nineteen eighty three. So he was involved in most of these, hosting them over the years, but. Uh, it goes to a new level in 1983. First of all, he voices it. He 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 didn't voice any of the other ones, but he voices this one too. The regular voice man, who I think was a was a guy named Don Rainsford, mustn't have been working that day. And so Peter Landy voices it, um, and he 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 does the segues to each segment in the show. And um, oh, I mean. It, Landy, Landy must have had a lot of creative control over this because it's that's the it's the it's the main takeaway is the range of Peter Landy's acting is just incredible. It really is a masterclass of television presenting from Peter Landy in this uh, production, isn't it? You've you've got almost every single TV presenter pose imaginable. Every single every single you know stereotypical TV presenter pose that, ever, that that was that was done for years Landy does them all so when, when it opens up you you come to come to him actually at his typewriter so this is this is again dating the whole thing because he's in the channel 7 sports office and he's typing away as if he's just you, we've we've got him mid mid typing out uh, a, you know a hot story he's going to read on that, that night's news and um, so he, he stops and he and he's gives this very stern and serious introduction about a controversial year of football and and he's clearly reading you know there's no um there's no teleprompter he's reading the script which is the bit of paper that's come off the the typewriter so he's multitasking while 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 he's at it too the final siren had sounded echoing the end of one of the stormiest seasons of change in vfl football history It was a year in which the brittle rules of the VFL were challenged, exposed and ultimately ignored with the Fashini case and the subsequent action of the St Kilda Football Club to play Paul Morwood without a clearance. We saw players sacked, officials dumped and champions like Peter Moore, Kelvin Templeton, Jeff Raines and David Cloak go on and seek new clubs. He's dressed in sort of sartorial splendour. He's dressed in, in in a blue sports jacket with a red pocket square he looks like he could have just stepped out of, you know, the MCC committee room or some other, you know... The rowing club. Land- Landy was yeah, big the, on the rowing the, clubs. <laughs> Champion rower, Peter yeah, Landy. Absolutely. Yeah, or, or, he's, or he stepped out of some other, you know, men's club of the early 80s, some sort of, some sort of exclusive club. The Melbourne club. club. I'm sure. He's just been yeah, at the, he's been at the Melbourne Street. club. Yep. Yeah, and, and that I'm sure that was Landy's scene because he was, he was the king of Channel 7 at that point. Um and it looks a lot like, you know, you know those really cheesy sort of highly staged pieces about like this is behind the scenes at Channel Seven Sport. It's basically that him going into different positions in the Channel Seven Sport office, um, but instead of instead of giving those cheesy lines, he's giving cheesy lines about the season that was. The grace of our aerial specialists is famous throughout the sporting world. The marking and soaring an integral part of our great Australian game. These then for the marks of season 1983. And there's some really good throws he's got. And just, it's not necessarily the throws, actually. It's more the poses of Peter Landy. 
I'm impressed with. There's there's uh, him just looking suave by all the telex machines. There's, of course, the uh, typewriter, which we've established. And there's one where he sort of stands side view, looks into the camera, blue steel, and has his arms crossed. Look, if anyone was going to get done for sexually harassing a camera, it was Peter Landy. <laughs> He he's sort of like this half-bred Mike Moore meets Ron Burgundy at the time. Yes, there, there, I, I'm not sure if Rob Sitch watched that was the season that was 1983, but there's a lot of Mike Moore in what what Landy was chucking out there. Um, you know, you've got him reading a paper and turning around, and and you know, in fact, I, I think there might have been a Frontline episode where Mike Moore actually did the whole behind the scenes at at Frontline, and and it. It reads a lot like this. Um, there's, I mean, you know, he's crossing his arms and looking up. He's standing at typewriters over the top of people. Um, as he said, as we said before, he's mid-typing as if he's, you know, we've we've just, um, you know, butted into what he was doing. Yeah, it's a bit disappointing he didn't do the whole, you know, ooh, hello, I didn't see you there. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That's that's the only. I think that would have lifted it. That would have lifted it to Logie winning material. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, can you just imagine the? Uh, let's just say it's 1983. It's an old school media office of a television station in the sports department. Can you just imagine the reeks of cigarettes that would have been oh. at the Channel Seven sports offices in, well, in back in South Melbourne those days? It's it's actually it's a it's the only the only thing that that I find sort of. That I find I find disappointing is that we don't have people smoking durries in the background because that's that's a real that would have been a real Channel Seven sports office at the time. Um, they, they obviously had to clean things up for, for him, and I'm not sure if Peter Landy uh, was a smoker, is a smoker, but um, he actually well put it this way: the way he's dressed, he should have a pipe. That would have added to it. <laughs> it it, it kind of did re- kind of did have a bit of a Hugh Hefner feel. Oh, it's, it's, you just have to see the the way he the, and this is this is you know this is about four or five years into Peter Landy being the the number one. Him and Lou Richards were the number one commentators. Um, so he, he's not he's not the new kid on the block anymore. He is he is the kingpin of Channel Seven, and and he everything he throws off. Shows that he he is the man at Channel Seven, and yeah, he I'd say a pipe or a cigar could have added to it, and and I'm sure I'm sure the aftermatch uh, involved a pipe and a cigar afterwards. And he's also just got that excellent sort of salt and pepper hair perm along yeah. with the suave yes. suit. Yeah, it's 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 neither here nor there, and we're not quite sure where it's going. But he, he's he's in that he's in that twilight phase of where it's it's crossing over. But um, it's yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't know. I don't know if Peter Landy was a suave man about town in 1983. But gee, it, it, gee, I, I hope he was because he's missing out if he wasn't. Oh, there's no doubt that Peter Landy was the man about town back then. Hey, um, <laughs> football. Let's go to the main subject: the football. Paint a picture of what football was like in 1983. The VFL 1983 season. What's unique about it? So VFL 1983, and it's 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 a time of where um, South Melbourne had gone to Sydney. So it's it's still the VFL. Uh, South Melbourne had gone to Sydney the year before. So we're we're dealing with a, a schedule or a fixture. That is, 
Six games on a Saturday afternoon played in Melbourne, but every fortnight a Swans home game is played in, in Sydney on a Sunday. So it's very rigid. The only stuff that's actually seen on TV is the replay on a Saturday night. So you get the t- three games that were covered in some way by different varying degrees of, of camera quality and commentary quality, really. Um that were played on a replay show on a Saturday night. And then on a Sunday, you'd get the live, the live feed every second Sunday of, of the Swans game. And that was a, that was a big new thing at that time. So it's very much still, a, a it's a, you know, money was coming into the game, but players still had nine to five jobs. You know, the vast majority still had nine to five jobs. The players probably looked a lot, like the fans there was probably a, 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 a more of an identifier because they were you know you know you you might you might meet a player during the week because he's your plumber sort of thing um mm. or or some other service industry which we'll discuss later on um but that was that was what footy was then um and even though it was it was still you know the biggest show in town in a lot of cases it's not something that was actually seen that much not like today when you know, footy's played across a weekend where we we get all these live matches and so forth. It just didn't happen. You you literally got um, every, at that point it was a brand new thing. The Swans going to Sydney, so you'd get eleven live matches for a year, and then the grand final had just you know recently become a live TV event. So apart from that, you got you made to make do with replays and and review shows. You mentioned the players looking like the fans. Well, it's covered brilliantly in the opening titles of that was the season that was 1983. It is. It is. And this is the other reason I picked 1983. I wanted wanted to talk about this, but the the opening of that was the season was 1983 is the greatest opening they ever did to uh, one of these films. So what it is, is it's an instrumental version, but but the original version of Eye of the Tiger. So mm. think uh, think Survivor, Eye of the Tiger, Rocky Three. That came at, Rocky Three came out in mid nineteen eighty two. So you know Channel Seven VFL were a bit behind the ball on cultural things. So twelve months later, they adopt Eye of the Tiger as the opening theme. To that was the season that was nineteen eighty three, and you'd think you're you're working with that as the as the uh, as the backdrop. You'd think it's going to be high marks. It's going to be bumps. It's going to be this great montage of great footy action and you know pump you up sort of stuff. Um, no, it's it's just shots of crowd fans in the crowd, um, and and it scans them all and looks at, looks around all these different you know crowd situations. But then in the uh, as the staccato riffs kind of come down in either tiger the dun 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 dun. With each dun, there is a that f- they freeze frame onto a fan, and that fan is eating a pie, or or drinking a can, and it freezes on them eating a pie. Now, I don't know anyone that looks good um, <laughs> mid mid bite of a pie, but this is not just one. There's about five different people that are caught eating a pie. I don't. Well, I mean, it's it's high art, mate. But, mate perhaps. And, and, Perhaps four and twenty were the uh, broadcast sponsor. <laughs> well, who knows? It was some of the great subliminal advertising. If it was, even to the point where th- there's there's a close up of someone like sc- pushing down on a on a big big um, sauce bottle at one point as well. <laughs> there's 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 people drinking cans. It, it's 
it's quite weird and it and it I've never seen anything like it and uh, and and the, the freeze frames add to it but also it, I mean it places you in a time because yes it's 1983 but if um, if we were to talk about fashion in 1983 we're actually not going to the footy to get the fashion of 1983 so we are in 1983 getting the fashion of footy fans so it it's it's we're in 1983 but we're working with the fashion of 1976 really yeah no the cool kids didn't go to the footy in 1983 no no, <laughs> no there's no there's no new romantic sort of um sort of where go you know boy george isn't isn't in the isn't in the crowd at windy hill put it that way <laughs> the football itself it's an interesting year football wise because it's I, I would put it this way it's the beginning of richmond's as a richmond supporter it's the beginning of the lost years um <laughs> it's the start of hawthorne's dominance in grand finals but you also see fitzroy and north melbourne dominate that season and i think a lot of people forget that yeah it's it's a that's a cool bit of this as well is that um you know hawthorne essendon play in three grand finals straight during this period and it starts with this year but you you a lot of people forget that North Melbourne actually finish on top of the ladder and they go out in straight sets in the finals, which is pretty inglorious, really, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But probably the great story that um, is sort of getting a little bit retold at the moment, given that the uh, Russell Holmesby's book on on Fitzroy has just come out. But um, nineteen eighty three is seen as the the great opportunity, the last great opportunity that Fitzroy had to win a flag. They are. Um, they finish third on the ladder at the end of the season, but they're they're very much in the mix. And in fact, there's there's a so there's a lot of lot of footage of Fitzroy playing really good footy at Junction Oval, including probably the the standout game of this of this video or well, this film. Sorry, it's a is, film. Thank is, you. <laughs> is round thirteen at Junction Junction Oval, North Melbourne are on top of the ladder. And Fitzroy play North Melbourne at Junction Oval. And it is the match of the day. Some call it the match of the season. In fact, they refer to it as being possibly the match of the season. The good cameras are there. So you've got Lou and you've got Peter Landy, who didn't often go to the Junction Oval to, with the good, the good quality cameras. Fitzroy's clash with North Melbourne had been billed as the match of the season. It was to turn into the win of the year for the Lions. Big Matt Rendell kick eight, Mickey Conlon and Bernie Quinlan seven apiece. And the Lions surged to a 150-point win. Nine kicks. Is that a mark? No, says the umpire. Dempsey looking for it. Back comes Rendell in the snapshot of goal, which he's brought around beautifully and put it through. Fine shot. And Fitzroy knock off the ladder-leading North Melbourne by 150 points. Wow. Like, just ridiculous. And, you know, you know you've got... Matt Rendell kicks uh, eight, and um, Mickey Conlon and Bernie Quinlan kick seven each. So it's 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 quite amazing the, the this game. But that's you know that's one of the real highlights of this season is that Fitzroy uh, are well and truly in it, and they're they're stiff. They they end up losing in the qualifying final by just a couple of points to Hawthorne, who go on to win the flag, and then they get knocked out by Essendon again in a. In a game that was pretty tight for most of the day the next week where a lot of the Fitzroy people and I've, I've heard Bernie Quinlan talk about it on, on TV and so forth back in the day that 
if they had have got over Hawthorne, they reckon that they 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 obviously had North's measure because they'd knocked them over by 150 points, you know, ten weeks prior. So they were very confident that they would have beaten North in the second semi, and um, and then Fitzroy would have found found themselves in a grand final. I reckon it was probably the last glorious Fitzroy season. I know they made the finals a couple of years later in yep. far more dramatic circumstances, but when you think about it. Um, the Fitzroy games are the hottest ticket in town. They're still at their independent home ground, the Junction Oval, which I think more Fitzroy yep. fans associate as their home than Brunswick Street, and that's just as a generational yeah. thing. Plus, yep. Bernie Quinlan's the biggest star full forward in the game. Yeah, and, and Bernie Quinlan kicks 100 goals. Um, he's, you know, there's there's great stuff of him Kicking goals from the from the centre square just with drop punts. It will be a prodigious kick if he does Everybody it. saying, have a shot, no matter where you are. It'll be the torpedo, will it? No, I think he might use the drop punt. It's high, it's long, it's there! It's 100! 100 goals to Bernie Quinlan and here they come in their thousands. And, and clearing, you know, them going through post high. It's, it's pretty glorious stuff from the Roys. Um, and yeah, I think I think even Fitzroy fans would say that that run that they had in 1986 was never. They never thought they'd be a premiership. It was a fa- fairy tale run, really. Mm. Great, great, great fairy tale run. Yeah, 83 was the year they thought they could win it. Yeah, it's really their coulda, shoulda, woulda year, 83. And yep. um, can you, um, as has been covered in Russell Holmesby's book, which uh, I'm about to read at time of record. Um, yeah. Could you imagine what would it's it's one of those sliding doors things? Had Fitzroy oh. gone all the way in '83, what would have happened? Yeah, who know, who knows? I mean, it, it's it is. Do, do they do they get more supporters? I mean, they probably get some more sponsors. Um, you know, it doesn't. It's it's hard to say. I mean, we say mm. now. I mean, I, I remember the there was some figure that that you know the Bulldogs sold a million dollars worth of merchandise or whatever in the weeks after after um, after they won the 2016 flag. There's, there was some figure on what it meant financially as straight away to that club. Would it have, would it have changed their financial situation? Oh, who knows? But, but, you know, it's a great, it's a great what if to think about would it have changed, but really Fitzroy, if you look at it, look at the, the eighties, I mean, obviously Richmond win the first one and then you've got, um, you know, Carlton, uh, Essendon and Hawthorne really dominating the rest of the decade. Um, Fitzroy were probably, you know, the team that might have performed best after those those three, you know, across the decade. And 83 was probably their year because Hawthorne, I mean, Hawthorne weren't a, a they, they were a power in the 80s or were to become a power. But they they actually weren't a power in '83. They they that was that was a flag that was up for grabs in a lot of ways. Australian Football Video presents A Laugh From Us at Football's Favourite Characters with Lou's Larrikins. 
an all-star cast of storytellers. Well, they're sitting on a gas meter drinking flat beer out of a Marmite jar. <laughs> Looks crackers, doesn't it? <laughs> Why else do you think anyone would make an idiot of themselves wearing white boots? And just as they got past, we all went, quack, 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 quack. <laughs> Lose Larrikins, a sportsman's night out at home on video. That one all right? Now, let me take some time to talk about leaguetees.com.au. Leaguetees.com.au are indeed our proud sponsors here at the Australian Football Video Film Festival. And it's fitting given that we're talking about uh, that was the season that was 1983 where suburban footy grounds still ruled the day and League Tees has a great range of suburban footy ground T-shirts available at the online store from VFL Park to Brunswick Street Oval, Cadenia Park, Windy Hill... uh, Football Park, oh, it's it's all there. It is an, an amazing array of suburban footy ground tributes. Uh, a personal favourite of mine is the sort of I Heart WP VFL Park t-shirt. Uh, of course, it's based on the old I Heart NY t-shirt, but instead of the heart, it's got the shape of the uh, VFL Park scoreboard. That's a, that's a personal favourite of mine. And uh, we did mention in the podcast that it was a bit of a hit parade of cigarette ads uh, on uh, all the billboards at the time. But um, if you want something from the other code, Rugby League, uh, which of course used to be the Winfield Cup, uh, you can actually get a Making the Big Game Bigger t-shirt in that Winfield font uh, at leaguetees.com.au. I highly encourage you to get that t-shirt. Maybe not the product it was allegedly meant to be promoting. We most certainly don't want you doing that. It's all available here at leaguetees.com. .com.au. They are the proud official partner and supplier of films, even, uh, to the Australian Football Video Film Festival. That's leaguetees.com.au. I mean, we mentioned earlier North Melbourne going out in straight yeah. sets and they've, they've got the Brownlow medalist in Glenn Denning, plus they've got the Cracker Brothers at their absolute peak and they've still yeah. got that Arden Street Fortress. Yeah, and North Melbourne, um, it's it's weird It's weird that they finish top because you like they have some good wins, but it just doesn't. They just don't seem to be the team that would finish top of the ladder when you watch this watch this film, and um, uh, it's it's quite bizarre that they they just sort of meekly fell out of the finals in the way they did. I love at the start of that was the season that was nineteen eighty three when they actually go to the football. And it's Carlton's home game at Prince's Park. And they're they're playing my team, Richmond, in a grand final rematch. And what better way to celebrate the raising of the premiership flag than getting the president's daughter to do it? Carlton President Ian Rice invited his daughter Melissa to unfurl the 1982 pennant and season 1983 was underway. Uh, Eyebrows to be raised, but I dare say from the Carlton people, the Christmas surprise as the flag is unfurled. A cheer goes up from the yeah, that's the that's the opening sort of thing. I mean, well, yeah, like not a not a past grade of the game, not the coach, not the captain. No, this is why it was still 
the VFL was still <laughs> was still a little local comp then, wasn't it? it it's oh, very on brand do it. Carlton as well. It's yeah. the president's young, pretty daughter that gets to raise the flag. <laughs> Yes, yeah. It's it's uh, uh, the president does it. Okay, yep. Uh, oh, no, I'll, I'll I'll get my daughter to do it. And of course, the daughter does it. And I think and uh, Lou and Lou and Peter actually make comment that it might raise a few eyebrows the fact that the, the daughter's doing it. And it's probably good that that's the only thing we hear from from uh, from Lou and Peter on on that one. <laughs> I I think uh, I, I sh- we should stress this isn't John Elliott. This is just before John Elliott. This is uh, President Ian Rice. Um, Ian Rice, yep. And and his his daughter is uh, in elite company with uh, who was it? Sophie Gosper. Uh, very Sophie Gosper <laughs> yes. areas. Yes. Yes, very much so. Yes, <laughs> but I just, I just feel like that is that is the Carlton Football Club at the time in a nutshell. They're, yeah, they're well, a successful club, and they are the establishment, and they get the president's daughter to unfurl the flag to, in front of the social club. And the other great thing about Carlton, and this is this is something that was explored, I think, about twelve months ago. Um, I think Tony DeBolfo who's the historian at Carlton, was the, the one that was sort of behind it, really, um, who wanted to track down the Carlton Whistler. Now, the Carlton Whistler features very prominently on that was the season that was and the years 81 till about 83, which is this guy um, who, whenever Carlton are about to kick a goal at Princess Park during this period, because the place is packed, it looks like the most rocking place pretty much in the league at that point. And this almighty whistle that doesn't just last a split second it it goes on for about 10 to 20 seconds this whistle anytime they're anytime they're they're running towards goal or near goal and it is heard very clearly over the commentators even and uh it it features prominently on this film uh every time carlton play at home and every time they go near the near near the goals you had this whistle johnston to ditchburn pushing it back For Harms. Harms tackled beautifully. I believe Tony actually, um, I think he tracked him down. Uh, uh, so you can check that on out uh, somewhere on the web or on Carlton's website. There'll be something about the Carlton Whistler, but just another great thing from the time of 1983. <laughs> That's so good. Another thing I've noticed in season 1983 other suburban grounds and just how muddy they were not just the poor facilities but just the absolute bog of arenas but even the most elite grounds so we're talking the mcg and waverley they were just complete mud heaps yeah and at one point they actually speak about um vfl vfl them having to move games away from vfl park because the because the ground's too cooked like it's just it's 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 bogged despite talk of postponing the match because of the poor condition of vfl park north melbourne's game with collingwood went ahead on schedule and forty-one thousand people were in attendance and you think about that the vfl park was their premier sort of ground the league's ground their showcase that they wanted to and that point was still a very live conversation that the the grand final was going to be moved to VFL Park permanently at that point. It didn't happen, but it was certainly what was in the VFL's minds around that time. Um, but they, they they were talking about having to move games and, and reschedule them because the ground was too shit. It's uh, it's quite amazing. Um, but again, these these were very different days. It was part-timers in a lot of these, these, these roles. And 
the thing I I like too about all the grounds are the billboards at the time, and uh, I know you've made note of some of them, but um, <laughs> they're just some great billboards just uh, around the grounds. That just if you we talk about how the people in the crowd are a reflection of the time, but I I would argue that the billboards are the real reflection <laughs> of the time. Well, I mean, the thing that jumps out to me about the billboards is when they go to SCG matches. Mm. And Sterling twenty fives just litters the boundary line. It's 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 a it's a tobacco festival really at the SCG. Um, again, the days when uh, tobacco advertising was allowed. I mean, it's it's actually you know, I'm surprised they don't they didn't have any on the jumpers that year of any of any club. But um, that is very prominent uh, it- advertising. The grounds really are a hit parade of cigarette brands. Like you see, Winfield twenty fives. <laughs> everywhere um i noticed there was one for uh in the state of origin clash which we'll get to a bit later but at subiaco there's one for mulbro milds so that mulbro (laughs) is going for the more lighter cigarette for the west australian audience and and it's not a cigarette one but uh a lot of goals were kicked down the eastern end of princess park where the legend stand is now but there was a big sign for tia maria yeah (laughs) uh it look this is still the time of the escort cup as well so it's it was from all angles we're talking talking cigarettes oh yeah everyone was just darting up like no tomorrow yeah. back then <laughs> no, no problems at all um into the vfl yeah. sphere as it was but um they they seemed the pl- places like football park and subiaco at the time must have seemed like these magical places from far far away yes well is it like and the, the WA games, typically we were on a Tuesday afternoon, um, which, you know, I think, I think they were generally played on, on like long weekend days in Perth or, or, or whatever. School holidays or something. Yeah, yeah. Some, some sort of day in Perth where, or maybe just, maybe Perth took the day off when it was on, who knows. But um... On Tuesday, May the 16th, Victorian interstate football hit one of its lowest ebbs when the VFL was thrashed by the South Australians at Football Park in Adelaide by 56 points. For coach David Parkin, it was a bitter blow and the end result forced the VFL selectors to drastically alter their thinking. And they'd, they'd be beamed back to Victoria uh, late afternoon um, for people to watch. The other thing that was the season that was does cover is some of the really big issues at the time. And I get the feeling, you mentioned how the competition's sort of still a part-time suburban co- uh, league, but it's sort of at a crossroads with some of the issues that comes up. And one that is widely known and talked about regularly in footy history circles is, of course, the Silvio Faschini incident, which happens that year. Silvio Faschini and Paul Morwood. Do you care to elaborate what what, what was the go here? Yeah, so I, I suppose, first of all, is they, they go to a news report from the day from Stephen Phillips, the late Stephen Phillips, who also was... You know, basically written, wrote, and produced these. That was the season that was. I think he did every that he did every that was the season that was. He did every Australian football video. Stephen Phillips. If there was no Stephen Phillips, we wouldn't be here. So exactly, we pay tribute to the great man. Very much so. But uh, so it's it features a news report from basically that night. The aftermath of yesterday's Supreme Court ruling involving Silvio Faschini's transfer to St Kilda without a clearance flared up at VFL Park today when rebel swan Paul Morwood lined up for the Saints against Geelong without a clearance. Morwood's late inclusion was shrouded in secrecy. He chatted with Faschini outside the ground and told me he was delighted with the court's ruling. 
Done. And it's quite, I mean, this is again a sign of times, but the, the backstory to this is that the Sydney, South Melbourne had become the Sydney Swans. 19-year-old Silvio Fashidi is one of their most promising young players, good, good player, but doesn't want to move to Sydney because they make the, in 1982, the players were based in, in Melbourne, but were just flying up to play. In '83, they they said no. That's it. We're actually moving lock, stock, and barrel to Sydney. It, this is this is the future. He didn't want to do it. He had this offer from St Kilda, um, but Sydney wouldn't clear him to go to St Kilda. So it resulted in a court case, which was a controversial court case because basically every club and and the league knew that what they did with players in that they they zoned players from different areas which which zoned them to a particular club and then they could never leave that club unless that club cleared them that it was unenforceable in 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 court but no one no one took them to court or or actually challenged that rule in court because once they did that they knew that all hell would break loose and the the, the competition could be cactus because of it um but St Kilda, with Lindsay Fox at the helm, decided well once once the Swans wouldn't clear Silvio Fashini to go to to play for St Kilda and stay living in Melbourne, went to court and uh, they won. Or the, the, it was proved that 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 rule was um, that law was that that the VFL rule was unenforceable. So Silvio Fashini is lining up for for um, St Kilda on that day at VFL Park. So Stephen Phillips is there reporting at VFL Park and all of a sudden, um, uh, walking into the ground, he stops a guy called Paul Morwood, who was another player at the Swans who was not really keen about moving to Sydney. And basically, you know, I can imagine this, the conversation went, what, what are you doing here? Uh, oh, well, and Paul Morwood says, oh, well, I think it's open slather now, isn't it? It's open slather now, so you can go to one club one week and another the next week if not on contract, so <laughs> make, make some brass out of that one. Which was right. The, the, the rules were unenforceable. So from that moment on, pretty much any, any player could have went and played for another player. So Stephen Phillips goes in and they, they, the, the, the best part of this little, little piece is that St Kilda, you know, planning to play now two players who haven't been cleared one that no one had even thought about hadn't been to court but but now it's it's open slather and they cover they cover all the windows in the change rooms with newspaper so no one can see him even though he but you know he's already walked into the ground the saints covered the windows of their rooms and banned the press from entering rumors were strong that the saints were about to spring another surprise so, so and then he runs out to play. He runs out to play. Uh, a Sydney player runs out to play for St Kilda without any sort of changing of, of or trading or anything like that. Lindsay Fox utters the sort of immortal words, there are no rules. So after the decision was handed down, there has to be a new set of rules. But there's none at the moment. There are no rules at all with the implication of the uh, the handing down of uh, the Fashini case. Um, which means... And at that point, the VFL was in was in complete disarray because there were no rules on players and that you know eventually they they did a lot of things um that that sort of stabilized the situation and ended up that's that's where drafting and and um and all that basically come from the modern day footy that we now know comes off the back of what happened with silvio fashini it's also worth pointing out that that at that, at that particular St Kilda game, which was against Geelong at Waverley, a man by the name of Anthony Lockett made his debut that day. 
Did he? Well, there yes. you go. That was what? Plugger's first ever match. Plugger's Kicked first game was was the Paul Morwood and Silvio Vachini match. The other thing I love, and now now I don't know. I don't know Silvio Vachini or the Vachini family. So, but later on in the in the the season that was, now mind you, Vachini's been like uh, the absolute biggest name in footy for a couple of weeks because this has all gone on. Peter McKenna refers to him as Faschini in a cup in a game later on. <laughs> Silvio Faschini. Let's play Silvio Faschini. Now I don't know. That might be the you know, Arazio fan, fan, Fantasia Fantasia argument from, a, you know, the other year that maybe Peter McKenna had worked out that, no, his family actually prefers Faschini. But yeah, I've no, never I, heard I, him Faschini ever again. Yeah, I, I get the impression Peter McKenna wasn't auditioning for a job at SBS somehow uh, <laughs> no. with those it's pronunciations. Sort of, it's sort of missed the, missed the memo that Faschini was the biggest name in footy, but... You know, they went with Faschini, and who knows that maybe maybe Silvio had uh, told Peter, and I think I think Jack Edwards is commentating with him that day that I prefer Faschini. I prefer just easier to say, just roll with it, as as would have been the case back then. Um, it's interesting you bring up St Kilda and St Kilda recruits. The Saints have a terrible year, as was the norm back then, finishing <laughs> nothing, last. Nothing but they yeah. they do feature in the news all the time and they are scandal-ridden. Um, and they start the season, uh, we mentioned that uh, there's obviously Fashini, uh, Morwood, and a young man by the name of Lockett his de- making his debut. But there was another prominent forward for the Saints <laughs> at the time who made an impact early on, but was given the uh, a phrase that would be coined 15 years later, the old Frio heave-ho a few weeks later, and of course, one Mark Jacko Jackson. Jacko. So, I mean, Jacko was, you know, there's a, there's a story in itself about Jacko in the 80s, but Jacko's playing for St Kilda. Um, that he's, you know, up to his old tricks of, you know, doing stuff on the field and probably a heap of stuff off the field. Um, there's all there's a story about which it doesn't go into in this this film, but the story was that he put a lit cigarette in, into into the president's um, suit jacket or someone someone at the club who was high up suit jacket at the time. And anyway, he basically Jacko Jacko sacked. He's kicked he's kicked 41 goals in I think 10 or 11 games. So he's and the team the team's on the bottom of the ladder. So he's doing pretty well given the team's no good. And he gets sacked and uh, Maxie Stevens goes out to his house to interview him and cut to Jacko, uh, the Jacko PR machine in, in full, full effect. What's Jacko going to do to paint himself as, the, as, the, as the, the innocent victim in this case? Oh, I'll go and find some kids to play footy with in the street. So there's about <laughs> 10 kids. <laughs> and we cut to Jacko, king of the kids, playing footy because he's just a he's just a bloke who you know wants to play footy and help, helps out kids. As a spectator, this is the way we've become to like or dislike Mark Jackson. However, there's another side to Jacko. Fair enough, the clown or the toughie on the field, but definitely the gentle giant off the football ground. This is Mark in his element, kicking a football with a group of kids spinning the ball on his finger and doing all his tricks with the kids and um, very softens up the, the Jacko image before they go inside and have a bit of a sit-down interview with him where he's going to tell all and, and basically Jacko just says, um, 
no, I can't say anything because uh, it's all in the hands of my lawyers. So Yeah, it was a, it was a shock. You know, it was a bit of disappointment, but uh, life's full of them. Do you feel you were sort of treated a little bit harshly by the St Kilda Football Club? Look, I, I can't sort of elaborate too much on the uh, St Kilda football side of things. Uh, it's in the hands of my solicitors and, uh, you know, it's up to them to sort it out. The only thing we gleaned from this interview, this exclusive interview, is that he had a big bonus um, uh, promised if he kicked 75 goals and he was on track to kick 75 goals so I think he was going them going them legally to make sure he got got that money too I think the story goes about Jacko leaving St Kilda and I think it was established in an episode of Open Mic many years later a very famous episode of Open Mic I should say uh, where Jacko reveals well mentions that he uh, put a brick behind Trevor Barker's brakes in his car, and that's why he was sacked from St Kilda. <laughs> it sounds like there might have been about twelve reasons why he was sacked from St Kilda. Uh, I, th- I think I think there's many, and if you've seen that open mic episode, I think you can understand why clubs why clubs were sacking a guy who was still kicking a lot of goals for them. It, <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's a brief cameo from Jacko in 1983, unlike some of the other seasons around that period. But, geez, he makes an impact, doesn't he? Oh, oh, and, again, one of the other reasons, I think I think Jacko featured... So the next year, the 84, uh, that was the season that was. When that went to video, Jacko was on the front cover of it, playing for Geelong then. Mm. He, was, he was the star. In terms of the news issues of that year, a lot of it did revolve around player movement. And, um, of course, the VFL isn't the only first-grade league back then because, naturally, the Waffle and the Sandful considered themselves top of the town at the time. And uh, Malcolm Blight um, tries to move to Woodville at the time. And this is where we're introduced to a young reporter from Adelaide by the name of Bruce McAvaney. And as Bruce McAvaney reported, a short time later, he announced a very short-lived retirement. After last night's NFL decision, the Blight was still a North Melbourne player. Exactly. So this is this is this is great footage because, um, okay, so Blighty has kicked a hundred goals for North Melbourne the previous year, but wants to go home to to Adelaide. He's got a, a coaching gig lined up and uh, back home in Adelaide with Woodville, and wants to finish up at North. But North wouldn't wouldn't let him go at this point so this was this this these tug of wars around players and the the whole clearance um issues with them you can see why um you know this the Fashini thing went to court because this this was happening all over the place um but so what what's happened is is Malcolm's gone home and he, he played a couple of games for Woodville but then north of kicked up a fuss and said no we're not hey you can't play we're not clearing you in the hope that he's going to come back to North Melbourne but the young Bruce McAvaney, and I dare say this this would be one of the first times he would have appeared on TV in, in Melbourne because oh. he, I think the, the, the next year he comes over to Channel 10 and because um, the Olympics are on and uh, that's when he becomes, becomes the Bruce who then goes on to Channel 7 later on. Um, but he is doing the sit-down interview with, with Blighty and it's very much... It's very much as you'd expect from Bruce. And Today, I'm... you kicked over 100 goals in the VFL last season. A lot of people think you've got two, three years left in you. Yes, well, at this stage, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, no, we'll just sit about now trying to improve the standard of the Woodville Football Club uh, in a non-playing capacity. 
Now, but Bruce, I mean, Bruce being on TV in Melbourne, one thing is that a little, little personal anecdote, my parents would have known who Bruce, one of the only people in Melbourne who would have known who Bruce McAvaney was because they went on a cruise in the late 70s and an unknown young racing radio person from Adelaide, Bruce McAvaney, was on that cruise. And Bruce used to, I think, have a beer and play deck courts with my dad and one of his friends in the afternoon. And if Peter Landy was a man about town, um, Bruce was a man about a ship oh. from all reports. I could just picture Bruce like that. I've got I've got a bit of a theory because uh, we 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 talk comprehensively about Peter Landy at the uh, earlier on. But um, do you reckon Peter Landy has a bit of a grudge on Bruce because eventually Bruce takes over all of Landy's spots? Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic that period because when Channel Seven lose the rights. There would have and and goes to Channel Two for a year in in eighty seven. Then it comes back. I think the expectation would have been well, but the, the thing was Lou Richards had left Channel Seven, and I think that threw the whole thing out. And they had to cover more games, so they got more people across. And all of a sudden, Landy's number one banana didn't quite work. And I think I think for a few years it was in limbo. And then Bruce comes along, and all of a sudden, there's a gradual ascension by Bruce and there's a, a demotion <laughs> demotion for poor Peter Landy. Yeah, it appears like if if you watch footy in the 80s, Landy is the main man, but as you get into the 90s and Bruce dominates, starts to host the Brownlow, call the grand final, Landy's starting to get demoted. He's doing the Sunday games that no one wants to cover. He's on TAC Cup duty on grand final day. I reckon, I reckon Peter Landy begrudges Bruce. <laughs> well, look, maybe we need to, maybe we need to get down to the, the nitty gritty of this and look maybe there's a series hmm, mm. maybe there's a series there about the great commentary wars i don't know who would go through all these great names but um you know, <laughs> you know when you think that committee emerges post 87 drew morfitt comes across from from the abc at that time too he was sort of swamped by uh, a, you know a new generation wasn't he pete and um he didn't have his mate Lou there to sort of be the kingpin. I, so I do feel for him, but um, look, a, a legendary performer. Bigger than the sensational 70s. More explosive than the electrifying 80s. The 90s were the decades that delivered. Nearly two and a half hours of non-stop action. An extraordinary look at football in the 90s. The emotion, the elation, the biggest stories, the greatest highlights. It's all here in The Decades That Delivered. It's out on video and available at these stores now. To go back to the main stories of 1983 and player movement, another unique character who does feature in the uh, stories when they cross to the news stories is Renee Kink. <laughs> yes. 
So, well, here's another one. If you think of the, the holy trinity of Channel 7 commentators, this one's done by Sandy, uh, yeah. the, the, great, the great Sandy Roberts. This was Rene Kink on the eve of his first league game, the 1973 preliminary final, which Collingwood lost to Richmond by seven points. 11 years and 154 games on, Kink is on the open market. The enigmatic Kink at the moment, is not enthusiastic about playing league football again this season. Rene Kink has been sacked by Collingwood. And so where do they go? Well, they go to Rene Kink's hairdressing salon. So, yes. uh, which he did. He had a hairdressing salon and <laughs> Kink's hairdressing, I believe it was called. And so he is interviewed out the front in the street um, of his hairdressing salon about the fact that he was sacked. And he... And it's a great exchange between Sandy and Renee. And uh, Sandy sort of asks, um, "Did you did you see it coming?" And and Renee, <laughs> Renee says, "Well, I got a got a call from the club at about four o'clock yesterday, and um, oh, and asked, they asked me to come down, and I I knew it wasn't a it wasn't for AMC." Uh, yesterday afternoon, Sandy, I was called down to the football club at about four p.m. Uh, to discuss something or rather. I knew it. Wasn't a ham sandwich, so uh, I was called in, and they said that my services were no longer required. What was your immediate feeling? Was it relief or bitterness towards the club? What was it? Look, there was no bitterness or animosity because I've been here a long time, 11 years. Uh, it was a bit of a relief, to be perfectly honest, because uh, after 11 years, uh, maybe I needed a change. <laughs> Which is just a great line—that <laughs> it wasn't for a ham sandwich, um, and he was good, and he was sacked. But. Um, it's just it it just it's just a really great moment where it it gets some gets some product placement for his hairdressing salon um, and proves you know for people of you know this is a, it's a story told that Renee King had a hairdressing salon well this proves it unmistakably proves that he had a hairdressing salon in years to come people will look back new generations will look back and be amazed that Renee King was a hairdresser. I know, this really tough football footballer called the Incredible Hulk was a hairdresser during the week. You'd think he'd be a plumber or a tradie, but no, he would uh, cut your hair, and I'm sure he did a fine job too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, bob, he bobs up later at Essendon as well. Uh, yes, he, and he, he ends up at the Bombers. Yeah, he, later in the season, a few weeks later, uh, and this is another thing of the time that players could get sacked mid-season and then just go to another club um, at different different moments. I want to go back to the actual football. Um, previously on this show, we covered uh, Biff's Bumps and Brawlers recently. And um, there's an incident at the tribunal back in 1983 involving, <laughs> yet again, a St Kilda player, uh, Greg Burns, who was a favourite for the Brownlow medal at the time. And he belts David Reese jones And, well, Gilly, I reckon this is an absolute masterclass in what we call the player's code. <laughs> Well, I believe you've covered the player's code in, a, in an earlier episode. And um, this, is, this is a great example. So Greg Burns just uh, com, you know, turns around and elbows uh, David Rhys-Jones in the guts. And one, one other thing, I mean, David Rhys-Jones, there's not a player. I mean, he's known for being suspended a lot, but there's not a player who gets belted more in the 80s than David Rhys-Jones. He gets belted in every, every season. You get, you get a couple of big hits to him. He gets he cops it right in the guts, but uh, sadly for you know for Greg Burns, I think it's at it's at Moorabbin, which he's lucky, he's very unlucky that this was captured on camera <laughs> being played at Moorabbin. But he's on the, he's on the TV side or the camera side, 
right in front of it. And Reese Jones, as you can imagine, goes down um, like like the proverbial. And um, then they cross to the, the they the story comes from the tribunal where both both Greg and David try to talk it down as that it was just a shrug. It was it was there was no malice involved. He barely there was no real contact. It's just one of the great lying efforts of all time to try and get a bloke off from both ends. So, you know, Reese Jones holds up his end of the bargain and <laughs> the ridiculous nature of trying to trying to defend this the way they did. But that happened every week at the tribunal. <laughs> the St Kilda Setterman was charged with striking in that he hit David Reese Jones with a right elbow to the stomach. Field umpire Kevin Smith told the hearing the match at Moorabbin was quite rough in his mind. He said it was definitely a hit with the elbow to the stomach. Reese Jones told the three-member tribunal he wasn't hurt by the incident and felt Burns was trying to simply shrug him off. He said that he must admit he was acting a little, hoping he'd be awarded a free kick. Greg Burns agreed with his opponent and said he had no intention of striking anyone during the game. However, he did agree he made contact, but in the form of a shrug and not a hit. The tribunal sustained the charge and Burns was suspended for two matches. So it's a, a real insight to the Wild West of the 80s. And, and you can just imagine them discussing in the lift what you say this, I'll say that, you know, we'll just get off. It's it's pretty, mate, it's simple. Mate, I'm just going to say I was just shrugging my shoulders and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, was I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel any contact, so, you know, you know I, just, I was playing for a free kick. Yeah, playing for a free kick. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah playing good, for a free yeah. kick. The, the standard answer for every tribunal hearing in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, there was no trial by video back then. It might have been captured on camera, but, you know, <laughs> definitely no trial by video no, at the time. No, you could do anything. I mean, there was one, there's one other, I, I don't know if there's a report, there's one other incident in this game where one of the crackers is blowing with a runner from the other team. <laughs> Sandy, Sandy, Sandy goes, down goes the runner. Cracker not like the attention from Card on behind the play, and down. Have a look at this. Yeah, the Biffo, um, naturally being of that period, the Biffo is quite obvious. Uh, it's quite prominent. Um, my favourite one is Bruce Dool getting his headband taken. <laughs> Dool's lost his headband now. Yeah, well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's one of the worst things you can do to the flying Dool, mate, taking the headband off. Yes, Kevin Ablett tried that in the night match uh, here a few years ago, and Dool went berserk. It's like taking a ball-headed man. Oh, I think uh, young Bahaja started over the fence. He threw the headband over the fence, Bahaja. <laughs> Well, they got the blues by the throat at the moment. So the, the Bruce Dool headbands are classic if you haven't seen it, and it's it's featured in full. But um, someone uh, takes the the headband and then throws it away in the ensuing scuffle um, before uh, Tony Bahaja runs runs along, picks it up, and throws it over the fence. And and Lou and Lou and Landy get right into it in the commentary box, so it's it's worth watching for that alone. But I think with the the fights and 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 the the biffo that happens, again, like the freeze frame and the slow mo must have been a, a relatively new thing, and and they use the slow mo in so many irrelevant spots in in this in this film, but particularly when there's fights, there's clearly that people got excited about the fights. Like Lou and Landy 
they just go they get so like they, they go nuts when there's a blue they love it don't they oh it's it's the highlight it's the highlight of the game for them that, that when there's a fight in fact I, and this is not an 83 but a, 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 something that my brother actually watched and told me about it was from a few years later he went back and was watching a game where there's a, there's a game being played between I think North and Hawthorne and about five minutes into the game Lou, Lou turns around to Peter Landy and says really affronted really affronted and, and, and um, you know insulted in fact uh, by and turns around to Landy and says it's not, it's not very fiery this game is it? Because there hasn't been a punch up in the first five minutes, that's how much they, they looked forward to to the Blues. When there wasn't fights, they were really worried about it. Like, what what the hell is this game of footy if there hasn't been a fight yet? I think my favourite line they have, and both Lou and Landy have used it throughout a lot of uh, times they've shown Biffo, is when they go, "Ho ho, TV ringside." Cracker having a go at Duckworth, shaping up. It's Phil Cracker shaping up with Duckworth. There goes and there's Jimmy, brother. and Jimmy's into it. Oh, they're boxing on from the word go here. What a day. It's TV ring, uh, TV ringside. Peter, it's best. I think the happiest people at the moment would be the Hawthorne team, wouldn't they? Oh, golly. Well, once you hit one cracker, brother, you, you've got to go on with the other one. Yes, but they have to settle down and concentrate. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's some, there's some classics, but, I mean... Lou loved it, but geez, Landy got off on it too. He was he was big time on it. Uh, um, and, and this this is the, the 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 commentary hits a new level when there's fights, and it and it shows right through right through any of these. That was a season that was from the early '80s and the late '70s, particularly. Um, you, if if you want to have some quiet time watching watching blokes punch the, punch the shit out of each other, get onto these videos on YouTube. There's a bit of uh, verbal biffo on the field as well, I've noticed. Of course, uh, the uh, Robert Walls-Ron Andrews uh, confrontation in the first semi-final between Fitzroy and Essendon really stands out. Yeah, half to... And I'd never... Like, I was re-watching this and you sort of... Um, this comes to mind. I, I couldn't remember this or couldn't have never seen it before, really. Is that um, Robert, Robert Walls and, and um, Ronnie Andrews from Essendon, Robert Walls coaching Fitzroy, have a bit of a, a verbal stoush as the teams are going into the into the rooms at half time. And I think this is just um, more uh, background fodder to what we, you know, the, the full walls, sheety feud that's raged for 50 years or whatever. This is another element to it because Kevin Sheedy is, of course, the coach of Essendon. So um, maybe maybe this is more Walls v. Sheedy. Yeah, and I mean, the Walls v. Sheedy rivalry does uh, feature in a lot of that was that, that was the season that was, I should say, because in the very last that was the season that was, there's, of course, that confrontation between <laughs> yes. uh, Robert Walls and Kevin Sheedy on talking footy. And yes. how Walls just wants to, you know, talk about how tough he did at the Brisbane Bears. <laughs> he went to yes. Brisbane and hid. That's offensive and insulting. Well, it can be offensive. Let me tell you, you wouldn't know what it was like to have an owner of a club who wanted to close it down every second week. You wouldn't know what it was like to have 90% of your players who come from outside that state. You don't know really, you haven't got a broad experience of coaching. You've been at the one club for 20 years. Oh, I've got no problem with that. No, no, that's all right. Walls v Sheedy should be, there should have been like a wrestling match, shouldn't there? You know, that, that should have, <laughs> at some point, that that seemed a little bit WWF. 
like. Yeah, it's, I'm sure there was a boxing promoter thinking that they could just do <laughs> do a walls beat, get them in the ring, get them to sort them out their differences. <laughs> Another thing too that happens in 1983, you, you mentioned earlier that the fixture uh, was still pretty much six games on a Saturday plus the uh, Sydney Swans every second weekend on a Sunday. Um we actually get our very first introduction to Friday night football yes, that year. Yes, so the, this is, it's quite weird. I'm sorry. This is just like, maybe it's a personal joke between my brother and I who've watched this a million times. But we always laugh at, they, they you know, it's round 19 or round 20 or something. And Landy gets on and says, the proposed Swans match had to be moved. Due to a rugby test match, the proposed Swans clash against Geelong was brought forward to Friday, and for the first time in almost 30 years, a VFL game for Premiership points was decided under lights at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Proposed Swans match, just sort of apropos of nothing. But basically, um, the the you know the Swans played on a Sunday afternoon, but there was a rugby test that, that had been scheduled and they double booked or whatever, and they moved the Swans and Geelong game to a Friday night at the SCG. And of the modern era, it's the first ever Friday night match. So there you have it. In 1983, we are seeing just a small part of the future. This predates any, um, you know, match for points. You know, not not the night series, but any night matches for points in, in the VFL competition by a couple of years. I think it was the second match for points. There was one in the 50s in Brisbane. Yes. Uh, yep. Where they had that promotional round. But yes, this is the first ever Friday night match. And Friday night it, match. You, you kind of look back on it and think, why, you know, especially <laughs> when Sydney you? moved up, oh. why didn't they play on Friday nights in the first place? Like what a like sort of fertile sort of uh, ground this could have been to... to play them on I mean I suppose I suppose they just thought I mean the, the, the big I mean if you think about the that time and again I was too young but reading about it is that there was a big battle to play Sunday afternoon football in Melbourne at the time and they weren't allowed to the government wouldn't allow the VFL to play Sunday afternoon football but had allowed the VFA to play Sunday afternoon football and that became a huge TV um, thing in Melbourne and a, and really sort of was a was a more than a cult following um, that that footy fans had of the VFA during the seventies. So this idea of of when the Swans went up because one of the big sellers in it all was that the Swans could play matches in Sydney. The government would allow them to play matches on a on a Sunday. Um, so maybe that's why they sort of didn't even consider Friday night games at this point. Um, they had lights at the SCG that they'd um, put in around you know World Series cricket time. Melbourne, the MCG didn't have lights in 1983, so it was probably a bit of Melbourne bias, should we say, that, that maybe just led them to not really pushing Friday night footy at all. But this was the first one, the first ever one. I guess at the time, though, night football was considered a different category of football because, of course, there was the <laughs> yeah. night series and there would be a night premiers. Yes, it was. And it was called Night Night, the night grand final. It, like When people would must, I, I think the whole introducing Dermot Barron as five day, five night premier, like for people under under sort of 30, 
Mm. <laughs> I must go, what the hell is this five-day, five-night bullshit? Like, yeah. it's, it, just, you... it must seem completely ridiculous that you'd call it the night grand final. But it was. It was known as the night grand final. Is this what would happen when eventually the grand final is played at night? How do you introduce someone? <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just say, let's just say it happens. I'm going to be very biased here. Let's just say it happens in a couple of years' time, yeah. and Richmond win a night premiership. Do they go two-time day, one-time night premiership <laughs> player Dustin Martin? Well, look, I think I think on this we go to the uh, we we can only go to the the court of Brereton to decide on this. Uh. Judge Judge Derm will will preside on how we yeah. how we refer to five day five night or one, two day one night from here on we, in. We, we need to get a ruling should a yes. uh, night premiership yes. ever happen. But yes, we did get the very first Friday night game. Now we should address the premiers of that season, uh, Hawthorne. Hawthorne did win the grand final. We haven't really mentioned them much in this podcast, uh, <laughs> this this episode of Australian Football Video Film Festival, bar um, Dermot being a five-time day, five-time night premiership player. But this was the start of a really, well, uh, I mean, they're going to love us saying this, a really glorious era of Hawthorne because this was the first season they made a grand final out of, I think it was uh, eight out of nine, eight out of the next nine grand finals. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is this this year was quite even in the, the top four. You got North finished top at the end of the season, Hawthorne second, Fitzroy third, Essendon fourth. North was 16 and six. The other three were 15 and seven. And basically, you know, not much percentage um, uh, separated all those four teams. Um, Essendon uh, percentage was 120, Fitzroy 126, Hawthorne 128, North 127. So it could have fallen anyway. Those top four, they were the four dominant teams. And and um, but uh, as we mentioned before, I mean, the, the pivotal match in this final series, really, you know, in retrospect. Is, is Hawthorne beating Fitzroy in the qualifying final by just four points, despite five goals in the last quarter from Bernie Quinlan, which saw the, the Roys come back from a fair way back to take the lead late in the game before Hawthorne got it back. Um, and from that point on, I mean, I, I don't know what the hell happened to North Melbourne this year. No, like They finished top and then... Hawthorne rolling by 40 points in the in the second semi. Um, so Hawthorne are, uh, are in the grand final and are probably in the driver's seat from there on. But Essendon were a good team and were becoming what they would become um, and come out and beat North by 86 points in the prelim. And then you've got uh, a Hawthorne-Essendon grand final. Um, but I think from the moment that the Hawks beat Fitzroy, uh, it... The season is going in one way, and I think you know Terry Wallace has a huge year and, and stars for Victoria as well. And it is, but it is the sort of that start of that next that next period of dominance with a couple of couple of people hanging on. You know, it's Lee Matthews' last premiership, um, um, but but a lot of the you know Dermy's there, Dipper's there, Tucky's there, Dunstall's not there yet, but there's a, a, a Peter a Knights big, is still playing for them. Peter Knights is still there, yeah. There's there's a there's a group, there's that it's that changeover. It's but it's not the the absolute dominant Hawthorne teams of probably the late eighties that we, we know very well. But in saying that they do win the grand final by eighty three points. <laughs> just just a lazy eighty three points. Yes, and they you- they'd smash them. And another character who we mentioned earlier, uh, 
took part in this grand final and it's our old mate Renee Kink, who I think was now on the end of his, oh, was it fourth losing grand final? Well, I think if it depends how you term this. You can say non-winning grand finals. <laughs> he's uh, he's 77 twice, yep. 79, 80, 81. There's, there's five non-winning. Um, and then... And then eighty three, poor bloke. Who 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 could have played in that many grand finals for not a win amongst them? One draw, of course, where he tried to one draw, one punch draw. on with crackers yeah. at the siren. But yeah, <laughs> what I love too at the end of uh, that was the season that was eighty three. Is just we go if we want to touch back on a subject we spoke about earlier is Peter Landy segues and just how generic they are uh, <laughs> in regards to the Brownlow medal and the grand final and you can tell this was clearly pre-recorded before they even knew what was uh, happening. It's this is this is classic and I, I'm gonna for the purposes of this I'm gonna say that this is this this was Landy's Landy's call. There's um, yeah and I said this, this actually so this aired at eight o'clock. 8 p.m. to 9:30 p.m. on the night of the grand final this year. Now, at 8 p.m. after the grand final, I'm sure, um, you know, I'm sure uh, Landy had, you know, drunk a bottle of scotch and had, had smoked a, a couple of pipes by this point. But um, tobacco pipes, that is. Uh, um, and but 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 he clearly had pre-recorded it because before the, before the the brownlow he goes into a generic sort of spiel about the players who've had good seasons and then it flashes to brownlow medal ross glendinning gets the brownlow medal no commentary on it no voiceover on it just that he gets the Brownlow medal. The Monday night before the grand final is traditionally now set aside for the counting of votes in the Charles Brownlow medal. Early favourites included North Melbourne's Ross Glendinning, Hawthorne centre man Terry Wallace and Tiger champion Morris Rioli. With 12 votes to be counted, Rioli took the lead. But a minute later, Madden picked up another three-voter and looked the winner. But Glendinning picked up two of the last five votes to go to 24 and held off a late run from Rioli who finished with 23. One vote further back was Simon Madden. Even the lead into the finals is a little bit, you know, it, it, he's pretty generic going into the finals. He just sort of says that the finals are set and there's some great footy to be, there's some great footy played throughout the finals before it goes to each each game. So, after 22 home and away rounds, North Melbourne finished on top of the premiership ladder, followed by Hawthorne, Fitzroy, Essendon and Carlton. Collingwood failing to make the five, despite early in the season spending a fortune on players. The stage was then set for a thrilling final series. Same thing happens for the grand final. Very generic, doesn't mention the teams. Last Saturday in September, of course, sees Melbourne come to a complete halt. It's the culmination of the sporting year, a battle supreme between the two top sides of the VFL in front of over 100,000 people. The 1983 grand final, in addition, was televised live for the first time to the United States, as well as to a host of other countries around the world who have now also come to look forward to that one day he talks about it being the first time ever telecast uh, on ESPN in 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 America, um, which I'll you know is a cross promo for something else I'm doing at the moment. US Revolution podcast, check it out. Um, but he, uh, for all we know, Landy recorded this in August. He's got a busy September, remember. Mm. 
Gilly, overall, how would you rate that was the season that was 1983? Uh, look, I'd, I'd give it, I'd give it four and a half stars, um, but purely, you know, it. It's probably, I would say that that was the season that was it's a solid, a solid threes to three and a half. But I think the performance of Peter Landy just, just tips it over the edge. Um, it's the best I've seen of him. And um, if you want to want to see a man in his at his peak, um, this is peak Landy. Shannon Gill, thank you so much for your time this week at the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, check out, check out. Uh, 83, that was the season that was on YouTube. Shannon Gill there talking about that was the season that was 1983. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival with thanks to leagetees.com.au. My name is Dylan Leach. Uh, if you want to watch that was the season that was 1983, the link is, of course, in the podcast description where you can witness the masterclass of Peter Landy's television swagger uh, yourself. And uh, it is really worth your time, if you ask me. Uh, now, if you do like what we've been doing here at the Australian Football Video Film Festival, do us a favour, leave us a review, spread the word, give us lots of stars, tell your mates that we exist, get them to listen, uh, give us a like on our Facebook and Twitter pages, at AFV Film Festival. Not only is there stuff about our podcast, but there's plenty of those Australian football video classics available for you to watch there. Uh, and uh, we really love sharing it with you. In the next edition of the Australian Football Video Film Festival, uh, the Journalist from The Age, uh, Mad Saints fan Daniel Cherney, will be, uh, of course, reviewing a tragedy um, called The Mission, St Kilda in 1997. I very much look forward to talking about that with Daniel. Big thank you to my producer, Nick Bleeker, as always, and, of course, our major sponsor, leaguetees.com.au. This has been the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name is Dylan Leach and uh, we'll catch you next time.